0: Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and my guest today is Gene Sung. Welcome, Dr. Sung. Hi. Dr. Sung, you are the director of critical care at LA County Hospital in Los Angeles, and you've been in this business a long time, and you are also the author of a paper that came out online in August about the world brain death projects conclusions about brain death. And I read that paper word for word. (laughs) And I really did. And I was impressed, not only at its uh, thoroughness, but the fact that you could actually get it done because it's the world brain death project. I mean, the whole idea is like get the whole world on board, you know, and just, just getting the department on board is uh, it's usually <laughs> a big deal. So, uh, you know, as department chairman, that's what you do. So uh, you really uh, used your skills. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this topic of brain death. And what did the World Brain Death Project uh, accomplish?
1: Sure. So, I guess uh, if you really want to know the real, real origins of uh, interest in end of life care and brain death, uh, was actually as a medical student, one of my uh, neurology mentors um, uh, was. Very, very interested in brain death and persistent vegetative state. He was a neurologist and a bioethicist, a guy named Ron Cranford from Hennepin County Medical Center. Your uh, old, uh, both of our old stomping grounds, uh, and he uh, uh, had been very involved in some of the persistent vegetative state cases that were going on, like in Florida and elsewhere. Uh, and so that's how I started s- sort of the academic interest in, in end of life, and um, particularly sort of the end of brain functioning. Uh, the more recent history for this World Brain Death Project is that, uh, actually, if my shirt, the Neurocritical Care Society, so as I was becoming the... Uh, as incoming president of the Neurocritical Care Society, uh, I had decided that one of my big projects as president would be to help try to standardize the determination of brain death. Uh, However, that's a little over 10 years ago. However, uh, I found out that uh, as I was starting uh, starting this project that the World Health Organization, WHO was actually doing uh, very similar things so of course I stepped aside and said well if the WHO is doing that uh, we'll certainly let th- them take the lead and I uh, uh, we were just a part of that project but unfortunately it didn't come out as many of us had hoped and so uh, uh, five years ago I started this project once again uh, and this time taking this the Uh, sort of the tact that the determination of brain death is a clinical practice issue. And so uh, the major societies, the world federations of intensive care, pediatric intensive care, neurology and neurosurgery, the main practitioners practitioners who determine brain death, uh, those world federations, would uh, be the backbone for this uh, sort of uh, consensus statement for how to determine brain death. That's how the project uh, came about.
0: Well, you know, why is it so important that everybody do it the same way? Let's start with that. I mean, you know, you can do it this way or that way, but pretty much, you know, if you're, is it that hard to tell if somebody's dead or not?
1: Well, it's uh, certainly, you know, in one of my, uh, my stock lectures that I give for the medical students, uh, I think that certainly, and actually, you know, in this day and age, there is, seems to be a real uh, backlash against science among certain circles uh, and against experts and uh, uh, in many different areas. And certainly, I think always someone wants to know if, if your doc is actually declaring someone dead properly or not. <laughs> so so they, we don't want to make any mistakes, certainly in this particular issue, uh, in, in whether someone is dead or alive, whether it's, again, uh, the more standard cardiorespiratory uh, means of declaring someone dead or uh, with brain death. And I think that One of the problems of having different means of determining brain death or different protocols or different guidelines is that it brings about some uncertainty uh, in that if you can be declared dead in one state, but not another, uh, that doesn't quite make sense to a lot of people, uh, understandably, I think. And so we are hoping that we could try to minimize the differences um, somewhat throughout the world, because there are lots of differences. And if we could at least try to, uh, that was our main goal, to try to minimize the differences, but also to make this sort of a foundation for sort of everything we know about brain death at this point in time.
0: I'm going to step back for a minute because all of the viewers are not physicians. And this really goes back to the time when, you know, if you were dead 50 years ago, you stopped breathing and your heart stopped and you're dead and there was complete agreement and no, no debate. It didn't, there usually wasn't an issue. But once people started being maintained on life support where the machine could breathe for you then it wasn't so clear. So in 1968, there was the Harvard criteria where they came up with sort of the first formal brain death criteria. And those have evolved over time. And I bring it up because I want to ask you about that. One of the aspects of the Harvard criteria that I didn't see in the world brain death criteria was the necessity for two examinations 24 hours apart. And people have asked me about that. And it's like, well, why do you need two exams? And it's like, well, I don't know. Is it because you weren't really sure the first time? <laughs> I, I don't really know. You know? Right. And the, if, I, if I read this correctly, the world brain death uh, criteria, which are, are very similar, I think, to the American Academy criteria of brain death, yes. uh, don't require, it does not require two examinations or two physicians. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. So there, uh, it's a little bit about certainty again. So back then, 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, uh, to be absolutely certain, uh, the group that made the Harvard criteria decided uh, they would use that 24-hour standard. Since then, of course, uh, there have been many, many brain death declarations and people studying brain death. And uh, they found that actually doing one exam correctly seems to be sufficient. Uh, in fact, there is one uh, study of New York, in New York State of uh, t- over 1,200 consecutive brain death declarations. And they saw that if the first one was positive for brain death, the second one was always pos- positive for brain death. Uh, as well. So that really just doing it once correctly uh, was sufficient.
0: Yeah, I think so. Now the American Academy of Neurology in 1995 set up their own criteria. And in 2010, they revised them very minimally. Um, And they said at that time that there's never been anyone who was pronounced brain dead using these very strict criteria with uh, absence of brainstem signs and no spontaneous breathing with an apnea test, uh, and so on who woke up. It just, ne- it just doesn't happen. Yes. Uh, because I think one of the problems that people say, well, what if there's a miracle, you know, yeah. and yeah. And But there's never been a miracle when these criteria have been applied. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. So every once in a while in the literature, you might find a, uh, uh, an unusual report. Uh, but when it's really looked at closely, though, it seems clear that the initial brain death uh, determination was not done correctly or certainly not with the standards that we use here in the US?
0: Yeah, so, right, because you read these articles, but then you find out, well, that person, you know, they came out of a coma, you know, well, what did they really mean by that? You know, was it right. um, a minimally conscious state or a vegetative state, but they weren't brain dead. And, and usually the newspaper articles and the TV shows don't, don't really get that nitty gritty. Uh, you know, with all of the uh, criteria. So what do physicians need to know about world brain death? You know, this new paper that's bringing everybody on board. Do they, are we going to be doing anything differently?
1: Well, probably not in the U.S. Uh, so I think that uh, in the U.S. Uh, and in many uh, Western countries, uh, we've been doing brain death determinations for quite some time and ha- have developed uh, fairly similar uh, protocols uh, throughout the years. And, and in fact, I, uh, the World Brain Death Project uh, protocols ha- aren't that significantly different from the American Academy of Neurology uh, latest guidelines from 2010, from 10 years ago. Uh, there's some very slight differences, but nothing, uh, certainly nothing major, which also shows you, I think, the strength of of, how, of clinical brain death determination. That really, uh, the pathophysiology and the clinical examination really haven't changed a whole lot. Uh, and so, uh, if you're doing it properly, uh, it, it's and. and I would think that actually the only things that are different really are excluding confounders. So certainly there are more and more different situations that arise that weren't around previously. More different types of drugs, for instance, uh, different understanding, uh, and then now particularly the use of hypothermia after cardiac arrest is a new therapy, which does make things a little bit different in how we determine brain death. <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: So last question is, how did you get all these people with different languages and different cultures to actually agree?
1: Yeah, so that was certainly, um, it was interesting. The hardest part of this was getting the different world federations and all the different affiliated societies. Uh, to get to work together to agree that those first of all that those is an important project to do together. Um, But uh, then they were uh, asked uh, to submit names uh, of their um, members to help develop this project. And so, as it turned out, the people who were actually involved in the project didn't have that many disagreements at all. Uh, and so the people who actually practice brain death and teach and, and, and research brain death the most actually had uh, quite a great deal of uh, understanding and agreement with each other. Uh, and it was actually just getting it started uh, to get the societies to, uh, to agree to work together. And uh, so it certainly took some time to get everyone together to get a uh, we have over four, we have 45 different uh named authors in this project uh, and then of course after the writing of the project and editing of it it has to go back to the societies to get uh, endorsement so that's what took a lot of time for sure
0: and it has been endorsed by the american right. academy of neurology as well isn't that right
1: Yes, well, the there are a few societies such as the American Academy of Neurology that they have, uh, they use a, a specific word endorsement only for um, uh, very uh, evidence-based guidelines, and so there is not a whole lot of you know randomized controlled trials of how to do brain death determination. So they use another term, which is. They affirm the educational value of this. Um, so well, that's they're a, on board. But they're on board.
0: They're on board. Well, Dr. Sung, I want to thank you very much uh, for uh, enlightening us about uh, the hard work that you and uh, those in 45 other countries have done to put this together so that uh, we have uh, uniformity and remove some doubt and increase confidence in the when we do pronounce uh, brain death as such a serious matter. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for this opportunity.